What we do here is go back, 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 back. back. And welcome in to episode Cinco of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. I'm David Statman. I'm joined by, once again, my good friends, Angelo and Glisa and Jake Long, as we this week discuss and relive and remember SummerSlam 2006. How are you guys doing? You guys excited? Very. I mean, watching this, this is definitely, this is from the era where I think I just started watching wrestling. I remember a lot of uh, King Booker and Batista growing up. Uh, Mysterio and Chavo Guerrero was the first feud I really was super emotionally invested in. And I can't help but think how perfect it is for the start of summer. Uh, we're in the second week of June now. We get a SummerSlam right off the bat. I mean, it's just per- talk about perfect timing for with things. Yeah, this was like, as I was watching it, I kept thinking like, man, like this is my favorite one that we've watched so far. Um I think that some of these matches just felt so big and important that it was great. And uh, you talk about remembering some guys. I've got a guy I just want to remember because we don't talk about the dark matches, but we had a Rob Conway match Ooh, as the yeah, dark match. Baby. And you I know that's felt, what I love to see. I could not help thinking about La Resistance the entire time. And I was like, man, Rob Conway. When I remember Rob Conway, when I remember Rob Conway, <laughs> I remember his solo run like around this time, post yeah. La Resistance. When he had that like terrible, just like Randy Newman style entrance music. <laughs> oh my I, god! I can't even say that I remember that music. I just like no. I, was, I was perusing the Wikipedia results. I was like, Rob Conway is a guy. He is a, in this podcast, as we know, it's all about remembering guys. Speaking That's the entire point. Speaking of remembering guys, because Jake said it with the Rob Conway mention, there's one guy I remember, and it was from like uh, SmackDown vs. Raw 2005, the first SmackDown vs. Raw I ever played. And the feud you go into, the first feud in your like uh, the story mode, is with a guy whose nickname was Reflection of Perfection. That was the only thing I could remember for the longest time. Still do. One Mark Jindrak. So yes, the Reflection Ooh. of Perfection. Mark Jindrak supposedly was supposed to be the second young guy in Evolution, but I think they replaced him with Batista. It was going to be Orton and Jindrak, or it was going to be Batista and Jindrak, but I think it was supposed to be Orton and Jindrak. How different would would wrestling history be if it wasn't Batista in Evolution? Who who plays Drax the Destroyer? Mark Jindrak. Mark Jindrak. Mark Mark Jindrak. (laughs) Mark Jindrak plays Drax. Damn. Blade Runner 2049 would have sucked ass. <laughs> but my God. Well, we're, I guess we're going to be releasing this episode a couple, a day or two maybe later than we usually do in the week because Jake right now is sitting on a bathroom floor in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where he is on vacation with his family. Jake, how's, how's Myrtle Beach right now? Um. I am redder than Paul Heyman when he's giving a fiery uh, promo right now. Okay, yeah. So just bear with me. And uh, but now I'm I'm recording from a bathroom, but like the acoustics are lovely. He is redder than a chest that is getting slapped by Big Show. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> and he's I mean he's doing the thing that all West Virginians do, which is go to Myrtle Beach. Go to Myrtle never, Beach, baby. I've I've talked to you about it. I've like asked people, like I've never gotten a real answer. Nobody can explain why, but that is there's, a thing. 
there's a ton of Ohio license plates here, though. Like, it's, it's almost all Ohio license plates as far as out-of-state people here right now. So is Myrtle hmm. Beach just the, I guess, the Outer Banks for West Virginia? Because I know everyone in the yes. Northeast goes to the Outer Banks. Yes, because it's not as it, – it's about the same distance for us to Myrtle Beach as it is for you guys to Outer Banks. I've never been to Outer Banks. I'm a Myrtle Beach guy. That tracks. Hmm. I've never been to Myrtle <laughs> Beach, but I have been to the Outer Banks. I mean, Outer Banks is cool. I mean, I think all beaches are the same, but it's whatever. They've got big sandy dunes out there. And you know me. <laughs> I love me some sandy dunes. That's a good ring name, Sandy Dunes. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, it is the summer. We're talking about the beach. And we're going to go back to August 20th, 2006, SummerSlam. 2006 from the TD Bank North Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Boys, Let's remember some guys. Because nothing says summer like Boston. Yes. <laughs> I think this is out of the first. So this is our fifth episode. I think this is the second pay-per-view we've had that was in Boston. Because if I remember correctly, I think King of the Ring 2000 was in Boston. That was our mm, first it was. Absolutely correct. It wasn't, the, I, yes. it wasn't in the garden, was it? It was somewhere else. No, it was in the, I think it might have been in the. It might have been in the old Boston Garden. I don't know when that changed. Okay. Okay. I don't know when they tore down. Or maybe it was in the same one. I don't remember. I don't care. Boston's a a pit of a city. (laughs) But tonight we're in Boston. Tonight we are in Boston for a a native son, John Cena, challenging for the WWE Championship Mm. against Edge in the main event. But we start out on the undercard with a couple of legendary luchadors, Rey Mysterio and Chavo Guerrero. This is big for me because this is around the time that I got into wrestling. I started watching wrestling in like November, December 2005. And the guy that got me into pro wrestling, the guy who really made me a fan of pro wrestling was Rey Mysterio. So I was excited to watch back and see this version of Rey Mysterio that made me fall in love with pro wrestling. And here he is taking on Chavo Guerrero at this point in time where they are just ruthlessly exploiting the death of Eddie Guerrero for every single possible storyline, <laughs> opportunity, and idea that they could possibly think of. It is incredibly poor taste, but here we are. It's Ray versus Chavo. Ray looking pretty thick. And got a, this is a, a pretty solid match. It's fine. It's nothing super special. Chavo kind of working as the, as the bruising heel. Ray getting in a little bit of high flying here and there. We have Ray hitting the 619 at one point, and then Chavo is able to, to duck out of the way at the senton, and they end up going both going over the top rope. Finally, Vicky Guerrero comes out. She interferes. She's yelling at him to stop fighting in the memory of her late husband, Eddie Guerrero. Um, she ends up hitting the weakest slap in the history of slaps to Chavo, and then eventually, towards the end of the match, Ray is weirdly getting booed for some reason. I don't really get it. And then... Ray goes up to the top rope. He's about to hit something, try and finish the match. And then Vicky ends up trying to get into the ring, bumps into the rope. Ray falls down, crotches himself on the top rope. Chavo capitalizes. Brainbuster, frog splash. And Chavo Guerrero leads off SummerSlam 2006 with the win over Rey Mysterio in 11 minutes. So, so the, go ahead, Jake. I'll, I'll let you go first. It's about damn time you let me go first, too, asshole. <laughs> so, um, as I was watching this match, like, and I know that I know that you just said that they exploited Eddie for everything, but like, 
did you guys not just see so much Eddie in both of them as they were going? Like, yes. especially in like like raised counters and stuff. Like when he hits the uh, Hurricane Rana, um, I think it was like off like a power bomb attempt or something like that, or some like some kind of slam. He hits a Hurricane Rana to send him into the ropes for the six one nine. But like, I, I saw Eddie just do that in um, was that King of the Ring that we watched him? Yeah, King of the Ring. Yeah. Like I just saw Eddie do that, and like, I just think that it's like a beautiful comparison. Um, but the biggest takeaway for me was what were the boos coming from? Because I don't they understand. Were they were booing the hell out of Chavo and Ray when they were both doing the three amigos. So were they like booing WWE for like having them do that? What do you think? That's kind of what I felt like. I mean, the entire thing, and we kind of look back on this now um, with the storytelling and using Eddie's death in as a shoot, so to speak. And I think that's kind of what they were booing is just it's tarnishing the legacy. I think not tarnishing the legacy. I don't know the right words for it's it. It's a little bit mm-hmm. much. It's it, it, yes. a little yeah, bit yeah. much. We've already seen the story. You already see the wristbands on both of them. You already know that the Eddie meant a lot to Ray and Chavo in real life. Uh, and now you see them both going for the three amigos, Chavo getting it, getting two and then Ray countering and then doing three. It's also just repetitive. Not Eddie, obviously it's a hallmark of Eddie Guerrero, but seeing it in a match and after how Eddie died and you're seeing the move attempted by both wrestlers in a short time span, I think that's kind of where the boos come from. It was a little, really weird to hear face Ray Mysterio get that kind of boo reaction. Yeah. And that's one of the Absolutely. things about this when you're talking about, I mean, they're, they're this whole year. I mean, really ever since Eddie dies in November, 2005 for like a year, they basically always have an Eddie-related storyline going on, whether it's this or whether it's the Randy Orton feud with, I think it was either Chavo or Ray or both, where he said he cuts the promo saying that Eddie's in hell, which is kind of... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had this going on for just ever, and it was really way too much. And having Ray and Chavo feud, obviously Ray was like the top babyface at the time, or one of the top babyfaces, so that puts Chavo in the position naturally that he's going to have to be the heel when he's the guy that was like Eddie's closest relative who was like his, you know, his brother basically. And who read Eddie literally died in his arms, like quite literally died in Chavo's arms. So it's just like, you don't need to do this. It's just like going back and watching this. It's just, it's really uncomfortable to watch the way that Eddie's death is used for the story. I don't disagree with Sorry, Jake. I don't disagree with that either. But I also think, I mean, if both of them are, have said, given the okay, obviously. I mean, obviously you don't know what pressure is coming down from up top or whatever to use this in a storyline. But if both of them are professional about it and recognize that this is something sad, but we can use it for something good. I don't know if good's the right word, but obviously it had a lot of draw with that story. That story felt very emotional. The match itself feels very emotional. You see Vicky Guerrero out there included in this as well. A lot of emotion in this, and that's kind of what wrestling is all about. You look for moments that are really gritty and emotional sometimes. And yeah, sometimes it's going to run people the wrong way. I mean, SmackDown just two weeks ago aired a segment where Jeff Hardy was arrested for drunk driving. And he has his, uh, has had his own demons to deal with. It's hard to see where story begins and reality ends when it comes to stuff like this. But some of that is 
kind of what what makes wrestling wrestling, at least in my eyes. No, I, I agree with you, Ange. I mean, actually, no, hold on. Let me let me walk that back. I'm so used to saying I agree with you. I actually <laughs> don't agree with you here because I, I don't know, man. I'm I'm kind of with David here. I just I think regardless of what the two guys said, WWE just milked it. Like like David just said, Eddie died in Chavo's arms, and you're like, okay, now I want you to go be a heel and steal Eddie's moves when everybody knew the situation between Chavo and Eddie. I don't know. It just seemed super tasteless, and I, as much as I enjoyed the match, I just did not like that aspect of it whatsoever. And I don't don't disagree with that feeling. I think that's a completely rational feeling to have. Um, As I don't know. I just it, it, when you have that blend, and obviously something like this, a death, maybe that is too far. But I kind of enjoy when you see that story come from a basis of reality because I think it ends up meaning more to everyone involved. Maybe in this case scenario, I actually didn't know that Eddie had died in Chavo's arm. I know that he died in like yeah. a, a car accident, right? Car he accident? did not die in a car I accident. Not, okay. <laughs> it's not even close, dude. What was it? Not even I, close. I just. I'm sorry. He died of like heart failure, basically due to like numerous health problems that were related mostly to like kind of drug and steroid abuse and substance abuse over the course of his life. So so that's not a car accident. I don't know. The the car accident was the first thing I went (laughs) to. Oh, geez, no. Um, But I obviously with that, yeah, there's the obvious case of that this went too far. But again, I, I can't help to be a sucker for things that you know, use reality to help move a story. But maybe in this case, yes, it was a little bit too far. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said to basing storylines in reality, but there's, it's one thing when you're, when you're fueling a feud between Matt Hardy and edge, because edge stole Matt Hardy's girlfriend <laughs> in real life. That's one thing. It's one thing where you're like, well, okay, this person who is extremely close to both of you died. So now you guys are going to feud over who was closer with the guy who died. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> let's not do that. So, well, what, what, oh, oh, Angela, let, let's get a little bit less he- heavy, though. Chavo's entrance music, though. Ooh, absolute <laughs> classic. I mean, that. Ooh, Chavo. Chavo. Dun, dun, dun. Classic. <laughs> it is classic. Um, uh, Another thing that I noticed throughout this match, I mean, the, the moves, it's not like today's wrestling or something that you would see on NXT. It's not very high paced. It is a good match for the, for what it is. I mean, I like the face buster off the turnbuckle. Uh, you don't see a lot of spots like that. Obviously, Chavo selling the 619 was great, seeing how far he flew back. Um, another thing that comes off really obvious to start off is just how different this JBL is on commentary versus <laughs> 2012 JBL on commentary. This JBL doesn't care. This JBL is angry, and he's going to let you know about it. He's just so aggressive. It was so weird to hear him on Hell in a Cell 2012 and then hear him on this, and, like, these are, like, two different people. Yes. Well, one, one, one thing before we kind of move past this, I was interested in getting your takes on, again, at least for me, this is the era when I got into wrestling, and the guy that made me a fan, the guy that got me into wrestling, was Rey Mysterio. And it was interesting going back and watching this version of Rey, because as an 11, 12-year-old at this time period, I remember watching Rey and just being blown away by just the athletic moves and the 619 and just him flying through the air and everything. We've, we've, there's, there's a few different versions of Rey. And we, we most recently kind of talked about the Ray that we saw at Hell in a Cell 2012 a couple episodes ago. What did you guys think of this version of Ray? Because he's kind of, you know, he seemed a lot 
I don't want to say slower, but I mean, he seemed a lot kind of thicker at this point. I know he tried to bulk up around this point because they wanted him to be a little bit bigger because they were pushing him in the main events. This, you know, I feel like the Ray that you see today, 14 years later, moves a lot quicker than this Ray that we saw here. Yeah, I I agree. Um, Seeing the Ray recently was... It was just a different version. I'm not, I don't think either one was necessarily bad. But this 2006 version, you could tell that he was trying to be a more realistic heavyweight. He didn't want to be the guy who just flipped around and stuff because then, you know, how's he going to fight the Big Show or, or Edge or Cena or whoever? He was trying to be a guy who could also be, like, big and strong and but still maintain that high flyer appeal for, you know, the 11 and 12 year old David Statman's of the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, that kind of created like this clash of styles, but I liked him. I mean, I, I thought he still looked really good for what he was doing personally. The thing I noticed most in this match is just how easy he moves around the ring or how easy he jumps off, jumps off the ropes. Um, it looks very lackadaisical. I mean, not that these moves you can, you can do half-assed, but he just looks so at ease with it. And yeah, he does look a little bit thicker than what he looks like now. But, I mean, it just, he looks graceful in this ring. Like, there's nothing he can't do. He, he does employ a more of a ground-and-pound style than we normally see him doing the high-flying moves. Everything's off the top rope. He tries to keep this into a normal wrestling match for the most part. Um, but, I mean, I enjoyed this version of Rey Mysterio. Uh, David, you said you were a big Rey Mysterio guy. He got you into the wrestling. The fir- first feud I cared about was Chavo versus Ray, and I remember I don't remember what year it was. What uh, the I Quit match on Friday Night SmackDown, where uh, Ray gets hung up in one of the supports, and Chavo's taking a steel chair to his knee, and you just hear Ray pretty much sobbing "I Quit" into a microphone. Little Angelo cried during that because Ray was one of his guys, <laughs> and it was just little ten-year-old Angelo. I, it was the first feud. I was. It was the first feud I really got emotionally invested in. That's Before beautiful. We, yeah. Before we move on, Angelo, favorite Ray match is it that one? Uh, I need to go uh, brush up on my right. No, and I think the my favorite one is the one that I will always remember, and the one I've mentioned. I think now at nauseum, the WrestleMania. Uh, Rey Mysterio versus Kurt Angle versus Randy Orton in a triple threat match for the World Heavyweight title. Rey walks out of uh, WrestleMania as the World Heavyweight champ as the little guy. And I think that, I think that's got to be my favorite match. Okay. Uh, with Jake, Rey. what about you? Jake, what about you? Dude, I don't know. There's so many good matches. Like, there. whenever I was watching it back in, like, um, 2010 and 11, I, there weren't a whole lot that stick out in my mind. Um, there was definitely – there was one with um, – Jericho, he fought Chris Jericho, and it was like a it was like a mask versus hair match or something like that. I can't remember the exact stakes, but I remember it being really good. But I would have to go back and get really schooled on my Ray to to be able to pick a favorite. Fair what enough, about fair you? Enough, fair enough. Easy one for me. Halloween Havoc '97, <laughs> Eddie versus Ray, all timer. Maybe, dude. How how have I never seen that? Oh, you got to go back and watch that. Probably oh my top, god, I've never seen that top, match. Top five or ten match in WCW history. Wow. Yeah. Just a damn banger, boys. A total banger. Anyway, moving on past all the Rey Mysterio talk, we go backstage. <laughs> We've got our first look at one of the great characters of this period of time, King Booker. 
and his queen, Charmel. They're talking backstage. They're, you know, speaking like British aristocrats, as they do. Just amazing. They were so funny. Edge comes in with, with Lita. Now you have the two champions, Booker T, King Booker, the world heavyweight champion, Edge, the WWE champion. Edge walks in. He's wearing wraparound Oakleys, which the kind that only people who today, the, on, the only people who wear these kind of Oakleys today are people who make YouTube videos of them stream, screaming in their truck. He's wearing those kinds of, of, uh, of sunglasses. They're arguing over who is the most powerful couple in sports entertainment. And Booker offers to have a little, as he pronounced it, wasia. If Booker wins his match tonight and Edge loses, Edge has to come to SmackDown, get on his knees, and kiss his feet. His royal feet. And if, and if the reverse happens, if Booker loses and Edge wins, then Booker has to come to Monday Night Raw and be his servant for the night. Hmm. Edge walks off. He accepts the he accepts the challenge. Charmel is looking a little bit perturbed. Booker says, "Worry not, my queen." And Charmel responds, "I shan't." And I was <laughs> dying watching. <laughs> I was absolutely dying watching this whole thing. I'm going to save all of my Booker talk for the match, so I'm just going to leave it right there. I'll save it. I'll save it too. I think that's probably the sure. best way to go about this. Moving on. Last week we discussed ECW. Anarchy Rules, 1999. And let me tell you, when you think about ECW, when you think about Extreme, the first thing that you think is ECW World Champion, The Big Show. <laughs> I knew where he was going with that right at the start of this entire I did, I did too. The world's largest athlete, The Big Show, who is the ECW World Champion. Honestly, I did not remember the ECW Revival being back this far. I thought it started in 07. Actually, I guess it started in 2006. Big Show defending the ECW World Heavyweight Championship against a real bona fide ECW legend, a guy we talked about a lot last week, Sabu, in an Extreme Rules match for the ECW World Championship. They ring the bell, and Sabu just comes out immediately and just hurls a chair 100 miles an hour <laughs> right at Big Show's head. And this is a eight and a half minutes of guys just doing spots with weapons. Just Sabu doing a bunch of stuff with chairs, uh, going through tables. For some reason, they uh, put a table up, but instead of putting it on the table legs like a normal table, they put it in between the, the steel stairs, which the Big Show threw into the ring, which I don't understand why that's better than a normal table. It seems like just a regular table, except it's actually slightly lower to the Shorter. ground. Which maybe that's the point. I don't know. Uh, Sabu DDTs him through that table. And then eventually, uh, Big Show hits him through a choke slam through a table, and he wins the match. And still the ECW champion, the Big Show. One of my favorite choke slams of all time. And like, that's not a list that I've ever compiled before, but I'm pretty confident that that one's number one because that was super cool. Okay. You can say what you want about the Big Show. But Sabu like hurdles off the table and he literally gets caught into like a pop-up choke slam. How many times cool. can you say that you've seen that? You know what I mean? But like it's like I, I like I like what you said, how it was just kind of like a bunch of spots with weapons and stuff. Um Sabu looked like he wanted to hurt Big Show. And Big Show looked like he was there to get his paycheck and go to hell home. That's all he wanted. Which there, you know, show is famous for, but uh, I I don't know, it just seemed really evident in this match. Um, 
And I just want to say that uh, you can you can love Edge and Lita. You can love Booker and Charmel. I don't care. The best relationship in wrestling is Sabu and a steel chair. That is the greatest <laughs> relationship in all of professional wrestling. True and I'll love. stand by that till the day I die. True, true love. love, David. True love. True love never dies. <laughs> and speaking of true love, what about the bromance between Joey Styles and Taz? I mean, <laughs> I love, again, as someone that enjoyed Taz on last pay-per-view for the short period he was on, um, I am again, I grew up hearing Taz a lot on Friday Night SmackDown, so getting to hear him on commentary again, he's, he's so good at that commentary position. It's It was great to go back and listen to him. He has it. Um, he actually makes Joey Styles a little bit more bearable for me because it comes off as two guys who are just bros who are just having a good time watching some wrestling. Uh and I got I enjoyed the commentary more for this match than I enjoyed Joey Styles on Anarchy Rules. Um, David, you mentioned this also. Uh, I think a couple uh, for Hell in a Cell. Big Show just looks a lot more intimidating with that single strap and how yeah how fit he looks in this match. Like he looks more built like a refrigerator, not dad bod Big Show. Uh, so he comes out. He's just mean mugging the entire time. The match is kind of sloppy, like you said. It's all about those spots, and there are a few spots. Sabu slipping on the table, Watts propped up on the steel chair. Uh, Sabu, oh, that was bad. Sa- Sabu dropping the chair when he's going to the top rope. Uh, I thought Big Show, at least, yeah, you could say maybe he was there to look like he was there to just collect a paycheck, but he does a good to- good job helping pace those moments and may- not making them look too forced, we'll yeah. say. Um, they make it up, obviously, even though it was a sloppy match, the spots that you get to see kind of make it worth it. Jake, I also mentioned that choke slam. That choke slam, just it, the look of it and how it ends the match is just perfect. It is a perfect end for an ECW wannabe match. But after experiencing the real thing at Anarchy Rules, this just kind of <laughs> feels like a cheap knockoff to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talk, you talk about Sabu, a little bit sloppy. Sabu was never particularly <laughs> hitting all of his moves all the time on his best day. He was Sabu. He was going to do a bunch of cool stuff with the chair and it was going to look cool, but he it was going to so like, you know, that was part of the charm almost. But I was, as I was about to say, that was part of the charm. Like in ECW, you could get away with that stuff because it seemed to be as if it was like, I'm going to do this crazy move because it's going to hurt that bastard even more. But like in this match, it almost seemed like I'm going to hit this move because like it'll look cool. Do you know what I mean? I, I feel like it, like the ring psychology, I, that's, you know, there's the mark in me coming out, but I think that that's like the big difference there. Sorry, was, I sound pretentious it, now. It wasn't for malice. It was for show. Yeah. Hey, good pun. Did you intend, you didn't intend that. You'll never know. Angela does not even realize what he just did. <laughs> you can't see it. We're zooming right now. The people listening to this can't see that after Jake said that, Angelo just had this dumbfounded look on his face for like, for like five as he just like like slack jawed gazing. Because at I can't, face. because I genuinely can't tell when I make a pun or when it's just me talking anymore. Oh you god, have lost all credibility. It's a good thing. It's, it's a good thing you guys are funny. It's, it's over. It's done. I need to bookmark that. Someone said I was funny. But last thing, last thing for me. Angelo, you, you did mention you were talking about the single strap versus the double strap, you know. I thought physically, and there have been times in Big Show's career where he did not look good, where he just looked like, just bloated, where he like looked like King Kong Bundy. 
I thought show at this period, I thought he looked like a badass. I thought he looked like physically like he was in really good shape and he looked like a monster. He uh, he didn't look human almost. Like it, he looked like that's not, that's a giant. That is not a human being. That is a literal giant. Yeah. Anyway, moving on, we have a, another backstage segment. Here here here's some stuff from back in the day. Remember the, the diva search? Remember that was a thing. Ugh. That that Oof. was always a, a wasted segment on TV. Next, we have Layla, who had won the diva search. She's backstage and she's getting bullied or something. I kind of tuned this one out. I think people were supposed yep. to think this whole thing was hot. It really just wasn't. We then move on. This is one of the big matches on the card. This is a match that. I saw this on the card, and I felt like I should remember this because it feels like it should be a big deal. And I was watching wrestling at this point, but I have absolutely no memory of this happening. Legend versus Legend Killer. The Legend Killer, Randy Orton, against Hulk Hogan. I did not remember Hulk Hogan being in WWE at this point at all. Did you guys? I don't. I, I do not remember a Hulk Hogan comeback. No, I don't. I didn't. And this is actually on the Wikipedia billed as Hulk Hogan's last match, last official match in sure. his career. Yeah. So I don't remember this. I And again, this is, I started watching around this time. I don't remember any promos for it. I enjoyed the promo package, then the story that they were telling with that package, because you get to see that classic diabolical Randy Orton. But other than that, like, I don't remember, I did not remember that Randy Orton and Hulk ever wrestled. Yeah. I mean, I remember no, this, of course, oh, Jake. Yeah. Like, um, as I was watching it, that's exactly, or actually I saw the match when I was looking up like the card beforehand. Uh, and I was like, I had vague memories of seeing this. The last time that I did a rewatch, I had vague memories of Hogan and, and uh, Orton, but I thought it was like 2004. Like I thought yeah. it was like, like two years before this uh, back during like, um, like I know 2004 isn't when the Rock Hogan match happened, but I thought it was closer to that time. Um, yeah, but that's it, it. It was definitely strange, for, for lack of a better term. Yeah, of course. Remember the Hogan comeback the year before SummerSlam when he had that legendary match with Shawn Michaels, where Shawn Michaels just bumped Ooh. around the ring like a maniac and just intentionally to make Hulk Hogan look like a dumbass. One of the greatest matches in the history of wrestling. But we have Hulk versus Randy Orton. And yeah, I looked it up. Apparently, the build for this was Hulk Hogan showed up one day and Randy Orton was uh, flirting with uh, his daughter, Brooke, and then they had a match. And so this is that match. Hulk Hogan versus the legend killer, Randy Orton. We have the classic Randy Orton music. Hulk comes out. There's a huge pop for Hulk. I mean, even at this point in his career, it's 2006. He is in his 50s. He can't move anymore. The fans still love some Hulk Hogan nostalgia. There's still a lot of grown-up Hulkamaniacs in the crowd, and this whole match is just Hulk nostalgia. It's Randy as the young guy, the good worker, working off whatever what little Hulk can kind of physically do in the ring at this point. Randy hits the RKO at one point, but Hulk gets his foot on the rope. And they, they restart the match after the referee had counted three, but they notice that Hulk's foot is on the rope. Hulk hulks up. I've never understood why when Hulk Hogan starts hulking up, why do you keep punching him? Because <laughs> why don't you just try Because they've been doing this for 20 years at this point, point, twenty more than 20 years. You see him start to hulk up, and everybody keeps punching him. 
How about you just walk away from him and see if it just peters out on its own? <laughs> Watch the film, Randy. That. David's but a big kayfabe guy. I'm a huge kayfabe guy, and this does not make sense to me. But anyway, he hulks up, and then big boot, leg drop, one, two, three, crowd goes crazy. Hogan must pose. Pose. <laughs> Listen, real American is one of the greatest intros of all time. Like, I don't care how many times I hear it. And like, I, I just love the guitar riff of it. And it just matches Hogan so beautifully. Um, and <laughs> like, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen this match, I encourage you to go watch it for exactly one reason. Just watch how Hulk Hogan walks around the ring. Oh my like, God. My man has no knees, no ankles, no legs hardly. He's walking like I could like his legs are so bowed you could put a string on it and hunt a deer with it. Okay. <laughs> That's how bad it was. Like, go take a look at this, guys. It was incredible. Yeah. With that being said, I would give props in two places. Angelo, you keep your mouth shut. I'm not done yet. <laughs> I would give props in two places. <laughs> um, I love the leg on the rope spot. I, I'm a big fan of that in any match that it happens in, okay? Because I think it it adds like a different feel than a kick out. I especially love when it's like a heel and the man, the heel manager puts their leg on the rope and the ref's like, Oh, I see the leg. No, no count. I love it. Um, and the hulking up thing, like it's 2006 guys. Kayfabe has been dead for like 10 years. Like, why are we hulking up? Okay. But, like, <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, you just, you just mentioned <laughs> the rock Hogan match. One of the biggest uh, pops know, of that whole decade is when Hulk hooks up during the Rock Hogan match at WrestleMania. <laughs> the crowd all in unison just absolutely loses their mind. I know, I know that. But like and, and they they loved it. The crowd ate it up. But like as I was watching it, like I was just I was I felt like I was watching a fifty five year old man get like happy. Like that's all I felt that I was watching. Just like I didn't feel like I was watching Hulk get stronger i was like man that that that's poor terry in that ring like <laughs> that's all i could think about <laughs> man it feels like me and jake are on our way to our SummerSlam match uh <laughs> but other than that i mean there's not a lot to of wrestling spots in this match you hear the crowd and how hot they are for hulk uh orton is selling like hell and that's kind of what makes wrestling wrestling is just ridiculous stories or ridiculous matches such as this that exist and make sense to anyone watching it. Um, at the end of the match, you'll see a guy with just this ridiculous back tat of Hulk. Uh, oh that- my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. I wanted I to mention that. this. I, I had this in my notes too. <laughs> and I just, I, totally I saw that. Yeah. I just started chuckling. Yeah. Uh, so I'm as, go- as, I'm Hulk, as, as Hulk is walking up the entrance ramp to leave after the match, he passes this. There's this really fat dude right on the right on the barricade who turns around and he's got this massive full. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and Hulk walks over to this guy and just pats him on the back and walk, keeps walking. And that guy's millennia was made that day. Uh, the one thing I, the thought that I had throughout this match, since it wasn't anything special other than a Hulk match, um, was just comparing Hulk, at, who at this point is 52 versus Flair, who we see in the next match at 57, versus someone like Jericho now, who's at 49. And just how in poor shape Hulk is for this match in 2006, when you go out and see Flair just 
kill McFoley. You see him and McFoley kill each other. You see Jericho now. He's still able to pull on some really good matches and get guys over that way. And then here we have WWE pushing out this Hulk who can barely stand and having him go over one of the young, bright faces in the company. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not just, like... Ugh. And it's not like Hulk in his prime worked a, like a, a high-impact style. It's not like he was like Dynamite Kid or something, you know what I mean? Like, but, so this is, this is like the one thing for me on this match that I have not been able to stop thinking about since I watched it the other night. It's a back tag, so, isn't it? No, it's not the back tag. So Hulk walks out, and obviously like from the mid-90s on, He's wearing the bandana on his head, like the full head completely covering the head. Obviously, you know, he's bald. He's trying to hide the fact that he's bald. We know it. We understand it. You know, some of us, like Jake, are getting there ourselves. <laughs> but at this point, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, he's, he's, got the, he's got the bandana on. And I'm kind of thinking, like, you know, hey, it's, it's 2006. We know that you're bald. You don't need to try so hard, right? We, he, he, Hulk was balding in the 80s. You watch Hulk in his prime. You watch Hulk at WrestleMania 3. He's got no hair on the top of his head. He's just got the long <laughs> side and back hair hanging down. So I'm thinking about that. And I'm like, man, you really don't need the bandana right now, dude. And it's about maybe a minute into the match. Randy Orton's got Hulk in a headlock. And Hulk shoots him off the ropes. And in that moment of Randy's arm sliding off of his head as he goes to hit the rope, the bandana comes off. And you see Hulk's scalp. And it is... I, I understood why he was wearing the bandana. Because it was intensely distracting. His scalp somehow went all the way back towards the back of his head. It was bright purple. It was just unbelievably distracting. And I have... It, is, it has haunted me ever since I saw Hulk Scout. It's like King Neptune in the Spongebob movie where people just keep <laughs> chanting bald. Bald! Bald! <laughs> it is somehow bigger and balder and tanner than you would have ever possibly imagined Hulk Hogan's scalp to be. Uh, and it, it just, it ruined the whole match. So in full context, I've actually pulled up the match while you were talking just to get a look at the back tat, which I saw, beautiful. And then I, now I'm watching the spot again where his bandana comes off. And like, his scalp is just so evenly tanned as the rest of his body that it's incredible. But it's just like, you know, we're doing this match and all right, you know, Randy's got him in a headlock and then boom, there's the scalp and it attacks <laughs> It just attacks you. It's like, it's like, uh, like Sabu hitting you in the head with a chair. It's just, boom, <laughs> there it is. Moving on past Hulk's scalp. Angelo, you mentioned Ric Flair in this next match. Oh. For me, this was somehow the standout match on the whole card. 57-year-old Ric Flair and 41-year-old Mick Foley, who is moving like a mummy at this point in an I quit match. <laughs> I mean, Mick Foley, it, like at 41 years old, you need to remind yourself that he is younger in this match than AJ Styles is now. I mean, he can barely... That's crazy. Somehow... Rick, Rick Flair and Mick Foley have, I think, the best match on this card. And it is just them. It is a brutal, brutal wrestling match. It is all just barbed wire, people getting hit in the head with, with chairs, thumbtacks, just blood everywhere. 
Mick comes out in his Cactus Jack gear. Within the first minute, we've got Rick getting hit in the head with a trash can. We've got a mandible claw with a Mr. Sacco that had barbed wire on it. We've got people getting chopped with barbed wire. We've got a barbed wire board to Ric Flair's head. Rick is busted open. He is bleeding everywhere from like the second minute of this match. He's just dripping blood all over the TV garden. I mean, they are absolutely laying this on thick. We've got Mick beating him with a microphone over and over. Rick refusing to say, I quit. Rick gets body slammed onto thumbtacks. At 57 years old, he is getting body slammed onto thumbtacks. The crowd is into it. They're chanting, holy shit. Mick taking bumps down to the floor, even though he can hardly move. His head is hitting the trash can on the way down. And finally, Ric Flair takes over and just starts killing him over and over. They're selling like Mick is unconscious. Rick grabs the mic and says, this isn't a laid out on your ass match. It's an I quit match. <laughs> Best spot in the whole match. He's hitting him in the head over and over with a barbed wire bat. Molina, Ric Flair's manager, talking about remembering guys. Molina is mm. in this. Comes in trying to quit for him. She's getting booed for it. Rick says she does not quit for him. He quits. Rick's about to hit her with the barbed wire bat. And then Mick, Mick Foley says, I quit to save Molina and end the match. Ric Flair, the winner. And at 57 years old, Ric Flair was a man possessed in this match. I'm amazed, again, and this is coming off the Hulk match. So you see one old guy who barely looks like he could stand out there. And then you see Rick just go out there and have an absolute barn burner with Mick Foley, who, again, like you said, David, he's already walking around like a mummy. And you have Rick that looks like he's in great shape. Uh, the shot he takes from that barbed wire piece of wood twice. And again, he's 57. He's old enough to be a grandfather at this point. And this is a guy who's just getting beat to hell. He takes a ton of spots. He's getting barbed wire across the face. He gets dropped onto the bed attacks. And I'm just amazed that someone that age is working this style of a match. And I can't think, I hate getting shots this guy's wrestling a match and a good portion of this match with countless thumbtacks in his arm on his leg in his back. It's just, this is a, this felt like an ECW match. This was more of an ECW match than the ECW title match was, uh, some of the stiff punches he was laying on Foley's head. I thought the story that they told with Molina was really good and how Foley said he would quit because it kind of sells that Foley would never quit from pain. He quit to save someone else. And I thought that was a really interesting twist to this match. But again, the fact that you have a 57 year old out there doing this kind of match bleeding like a pig, looking like this crazed madman at the end of the match with the crimson mask. It, it this was just, I have no words for it. It was just amazing to watch. So I just want to say something because I, I'm not sure if my family can hear me while I'm recording this or not, but if they heard me refer to a 57-year-old as old, they would come in here and do to me what Rick did to Mick Foley, okay? <laughs> so I'm not going to say that he is old. I'm just going to say that he was of the upper age for a professional wrestler. But dear God, he yeah, he was well-experienced. He was taking some freaking bumps, though. That just blew my mind. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a random spot that I think is actually up there as far as the most brutal spots. And it's the uh, Irish whip into the stairs. But instead of like throwing your shoulder into them, you actually hit them and topple over top of it. 
Because have you ever done that where you're running and just hit something and fall over top of it? You want to talk about pain. That is pain. And Mick Foley just took one straight to the thighs and it ended up on his head on the other side. And like, that's a, that's a real life bump. You're never going to get thrown down on thumbtacks or anything, but you can be running and look over your shoulder and end up face uh, head first into the ground. Um, and then there's an old saying too, that I like to think about. And it's nobody bleeds like Ric Flair. And I think that that is a worthwhile saying. Everybody talks about how in like the 90s or 80s and 90s when he would bleed, it would kind of like match with his um, or it would contrast with like his sterling blonde hair or whatever. And I mean, he's kind of uh, his hair has kind of lost that sheen now by this time. But like, you know, nice big permed up uh, or, or teased up Ric Flair. I'd have loved to have seen some blood on that with that hair. Yeah. But I mean, we're not there's not even a contrast at this point. Like. By the fifth moment, minute of this match on, his hair is all red. There is red. no blonde left in his hair. It is all red with blood. Yeah, right? I mean, it, it. hey, it's not his fault Ric Flair's got good vein or artery, whatever. I don't know which one takes blood out. He bleeds well. <laughs> Man, nobody knows how to bleed like Rick, buddy. <laughs> but, I mean, Ric Flair, again, at 57 years old, just being like, yeah, body slam me onto some thumbtacks. I'm not even, you know, I'm not wearing a shirt. I'll get, I'll get 50 thumbtacks embedded into my body. I'm 57 years old. The guy that's, is, that's, that's called selling out for the business. He was a man possessed in this match. Unbelievable. I mean, this match was, I mean, this is a match between a 57 year old man and a 41 year old man who moves like a 61 year old man. And they had to, to really get this match over. They were going to have to pull out every bell and whistle and do all the smoke and mirrors possible. And they did it. And it was awesome. I, I also, I, I know I said this when you were talking about it, but whenever Rick said, this isn't a, this isn't a lay down in your ass match. It's an awkward match. I was losing it because I thought that was such a brutal line that I just loved every second of it. Yeah. No, it, Rick's delivery. Just when he gets like, when, <laughs> yeah, when he gets when, mad, when he gets mad and he was mad this whole match. Every time he was on, like, mad Ric Flair, nobody owns the mic like a mad Ric Flair. I need to see some prime Ric Flair. That I, I need to see Ooh, that. That's something man. I need yes, to see now. Yes, you do. A hundred percent. Well, hope you know, we'll see. We'll spin the wheel you know, in, in a little while, a couple matches. I want some, we'll spin the wheel and we'll see where we get. I want some 80s Ric Flair on the next one. Well, let's hope. So we move on. World Heavyweight Championship match. King Booker taking on Batista. Booker coming in as the champion. And, I mean, there's really no way they could have followed this match. Uh, especially with, with the kind of match this, they work. This is not a bad match by any stretch of the imagination, but it's kind of just a, a regular wrestling match. It's a little bit slow getting into it. They build it up. It turns into something, I think, pretty pretty solid. I think it's a pretty solid match. Um, big pop, of course, for Batista, Drax the Destroyer. Everyone loves him. He was just coming back from injury at this point, so he was still still pretty new. Match picks up after kind of a you know a long kind of series of rest holds. One point, Booker takes his kingly scepter and just obliterates it on Batista's head, which was really cool because the thing just explodes. Um, so it was obviously made out of like like they probably bought it at a dollar store. 
but you know because it, it just absolutely explodes but it's really cool it's a cool visual um match starts to pick up we got booker hits a missile drop kick and then a rock bottom sets up batista for his finishing move the scissor kick batista gets out of the way hits a jackhammer gets a bunch of goldberg chants for that some really loud goldberg chants for the for the for the jackhammer i thought batista showed off really nice arsenal of just power moves in this match he's a good wrestler he's about to hit the batista bomb and win it and then queen charmel just jumps on his back and starts hitting him over and over again and then we get a dis- disqualification in this title match still champion is king booker so let's just start with the king booker talk because we need to discuss this the f- we talked about this uh few few episodes ago how the king gimmick nowadays in wwe is just wasted they don't do anything good with it king baron corbin no one's buying right now the reason why king booker is regarded as one of the best kings of the ring of all time is because of how much he devotes to the bit how much he devotes himself to the bit the from the really bad british accent to the entrance theme music where it's just this regal music to Queen Charmel eh, I'm just horrible at pronouncing things uh, just constantly saying all hail King Booker the entire time as he's walking down to the ring it's what makes the gimmick good and that's why we remember King Booker fondly as a heel is because of how over the top this entire thing was Uh, especially with the World Heavyweight Championship the look of that belt with the King gimmick it just meshed so well together, and that's what kind of made King Bi- Booker, King Booker, King Booker, <laughs> King Booker, Booker. So, David, I have a question for you. Do you remember that time that Batista wasn't super cool? I do not. Exactly, Batista doing the machine gun entrance, like when the, the pyrotechnics are going off behind him is just elite so badass. it is elite Top level notch. stuff um but you know what i'm i'm gonna come at you guys with the with a with a take okay i don't like booker t yeah what's your nope. rationale for that now the king booker care king booker character i find he's good i get it i've never seen him have a match i would have put above two stars the only time I ever would have thought about it was when he was doing the best of seven with Benoit. That but was what came was to the... mind immediately for me, honestly, was the Benoit well, match. And, and I, but I remember Benoit like carrying those matches. So like, I, I don't remember Booker doing anything great in them. I'm not saying Booker had a bunch of bad matches. I just don't remember him doing anything next level. Yeah. I remember him being kind of the grounded, like he's, going to do the same moves and kind of do the same thing. Now the Booker King Booker character was great. I, I would give him that, but I just, I didn't like him, but I can see during this time and David and Ange, you guys were watching at the time. So maybe you'll have an idea. Was King Booker truly despised at this time? Like as a heel. Okay. So for me at least, and kind of going back to what you said, I, I, I will say that I think there is something to that because I was thinking about it and all the like really good Booker T matches I can think of, we're like singles matches with Chris Benoit. So, yeah. yeah, there might be something to that there, even though I always thought Booker T was really cool. For me, at least, I hated King Booker. But again, I was I was 12 years old. It, it, kind of thinking about this a little bit, one of the reasons I was like a little bit, I was a little bit 
not reluctant, but I was a little bit nervous about going back and watching 2006 WWE because this was when I started watching wrestling and when I, I fell in love with wrestling. I remember watching all this stuff and thinking, God, this is so cool. Like, this is awesome. I can't believe that I've never watched this before and just getting so into wrestling. <laughs> and I was afraid going back because I, I haven't really watched most of this stuff since I was 12 years old. And, and being afraid that I was going to watch this back now as a, as a 25-year-old and think, realize like all this stuff that I thought was so cool when I was 11, 12 years old <laughs> actually sucks ass. <laughs> and there definitely were a few things that I was like, yeah, this is not as cool as I thought it was when I was 12. But King Booker, I hated King Booker when I was 12 years old. <laughs> because partially because I thought Booker T was really cool. And once he starts doing this King Booker gimmick, I was like, no, stop. Go back to doing the spin rooney that's, that's so cool. Please stop doing this. I want cool Booker T back. But now I can just I want... imagine 11-year-old David wanting to spin a rooney so badly. Dude, I, I wish I could spin a rooney now. I, I would eat the spin a rooney all the time, dude. I would go to I would go to Joe's in Morgantown and hit the spin rooney. <laughs> oh my god. Going back and watching this now, and again, I hate it when I was 12 years old. Now I was grinning my ass off whenever King because <laughs> I was like, no, this is the opposite. This is so much cooler than I thought it was when I was 12 years old. <laughs> but at the time, at least for me, I hated King Booker with a fury. Mostly because I thought Booker T on his own was really cool, and I wanted to see more. Super Booker cool, T. yeah. Uh, for I me think I think that DQ finishes like this, like like where Charmel comes in. DQ finishes like that builds so much heat with me, like as a wrestling fan, because it's like, oh, like you're not good enough to like get a clean finish, so you got to get your your lackey to come in and and do it for you. Like, I I just think that, that builds a lot of heat, at least with me. Um, so at the time, I would have I would have hated him. So. Again, that's kind of the reason why I hate him, too. I wasn't a big Booker T guy, uh, obviously, when I was younger. He was a heel. Kids don't like heels. Uh, but I just went back to look at that King of the Ring tournament and see who was in it, who who fought who, or who wrestled who. And I now remember why I had such a disdain for Booker T. In the first round, the quarterfinals on a SmackDown, Booker T moves on to the semifinals with a 15-minute win over none other than Matt Hardy. Your all-time fave. Ooh. My all-time fave. I hated I Booker got a lot of heat for me. Now that I remember. <laughs> he moves on against Kurt Angle in the semifinals by forfeit because Kurt can't wrestle because he's injured. He moves on to the final. He wrestles Bobby Lashley, who at this time is extremely cool. Uh, he beats Bobby Lashley there. So, obviously, then you get King Booker. You already have the heat from Booker. And then he gets this King gimmick where he's just absolutely insufferable. Uh, and then you have uh, Queen Charmel, who also has the level of insufferability. And then you get DQ finishes, like he, the one here with Batista. And it's just Booker in this match, and this match itself, it feels like there's off on the ring chemistry between these two. It wasn't necessarily a great match. I would actually maybe classify it as a bad match. But the thing that makes it good is that you have a character in King Booker who is getting a ton of heat, who is a 
who's doing it the right way in terms of getting that heat. You have Batista, who they're making this baby face as, as this complete badass who's trying to, you know, usurp the king. And you could do a lot of cool things with that. So even if the match itself wasn't great, the roles that they are playing and how well King Booker, Booker T, plays to this role, even if his match work, his in-ring work isn't great or we don't appreciate, the character is what makes these matches. It's not necessarily the moves itself. Yeah, but the, you know, and it's funny that that we say that. Like, how much time have we spent talking about Booker T and the other guy in the match is freaking Batista, and we haven't hardly talked about him? Think about that for a second. Think about how awesome Batista is, and we've been like, man, Booker. Like, I like I know I said something about him earlier, but I mean, Batista just plays the powerhouse gimmick so well. He's so believable because he moves so well, and I mean. I, I know that the Batista bomb is just a sit-out power bomb, but God, it looks so brutal every time he hits it. Yeah, like, it looks like it should drive them straight to hell when yeah. he hits somebody. He looks like it. he's power bombing them through the Earth's core. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Really, one last thing on the on the Booker gimmick before we move past it. I do want to acknowledge the contributions of Charmel to the gimmick as well. Because I, I remember Booker, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I didn't remember how good Charmel was. Oh, man, I remember despising her, too. Yeah. We need to give some credit to Charmel on this one. Rep- credit to Charmel. Credit. credit to Charmel. We move on now to what I guess is the co-main event, but it was definitely, if you remember back to this point, this was the match that was on the poster. This was the match that I think was sort of promoted more than any other match. Kind of the yeah. fact the main event, if not... The actual main events, D-Generation X, Shawn Michaels, and Triple H against the McMahons. Vince McMahon and his son Shane McMahon in a tag team match. This, of course, coming during the first DX comeback in 2006, which I remember as a 12-year-old, even though I had never seen the original DX, I just thought this was so cool. Nothing but crotch chops. Yes. And now you like I look back on it and it was just all the most like sophomoric like 11-year-old humor <laughs> like ah, we're going to fart on Vince McMahon's we're going to fart in his limo. <laughs> you know, that's like the whole thing. Like, DX oh, gave gonna... me a rooster cuz apparently I love cocks. Yes. <laughs> ha! He gave him a rooster cuz of a double entendre. <laughs> like it's just all the most sophomoric humor ever. But at the time 12-year-old David Statter just thought this was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> but we're talking about remembering guys. This is this match itself is like the remembering guys Olympics. It is a gauntlet of remembering guys. DX hey, hold comes on. I have a guy, and you're going to steal it from me. I already know it. I'm already mad about it, but go ahead. Go ahead. No, David. I mean, if you want to go, you can go. I don't want to. I'm just going just gonna to point out uh, the, somebody from the Spirit Squad when you get there. I'm probably going to get I'm probably going to get uh... <laughs> But because I have it written down in my notes. But anyway, whatever. It's fine. So the whole thing, DX comes out. You know, we got the whole feud between, you know, the never ending feud between the rebellious 40 year old Shawn Michael and Triple H taking on the the authority, even though Triple H is literally married to the boss's daughter, but that didn't really get acknowledged that much during this feud. Um but the McMahons, they don't want to take on Shawn Michaels and Triple H straight up because they know they're going to get their ass kicked because they're not actually wrestlers. So they send out all their goons. They send out the Spirit Squad. We're talking about remembering, guys. The Spirit Squad. 
Spirit am Squad. I, am I allowed out. to talk? Do you want to go? I because I know what you're gonna. I just hey David, I just want to say it before you do. Dolph Ziggler's in the Spirit Squad. He's yeah, Mickey. Dolph Ziggler. <laughs> The future Dolph Ziggler. I remember. member of the Spirit Squad. You remember Dolph Ziggler? The Spirit Squad come out, and they just get beaten up like a bunch of jabronis. Um, and young <laughs> young Dolph Ziggler gets backdropped over the top rope by Triple H. Goes flying. They don't get seen again. Then, it's, not only Mr. Kennedy, Ooh. we also get William Regal and our favorite Irishman who loves to fight, Finley. They all three come out, and they just get absolutely sent packing. And then Big Show comes out now for some reason. And Big Show comes out, and he's being big, and they kind of gives the other three guys the time to, uh, to recover. And now it's a four-on-two beatdown. And they're just pummeling DX. And, you know, Finley's hitting everybody with a shillelagh. Finally, Big Show chokeslam Triple H to the announce table, and the McMahons finally enter the ring, and we ring the bell, and we have a match. And the almost this entire match is just them beating the hell out of Shawn Michaels and Shawn just selling and selling and selling and selling while Triple H lies on the outside, just dead. Triple H is dead for this entire match. The McMahons are just beating the hell out of him. They're hitting him with all these finishing moves from tag teams from the 80s, which I actually thought was really <laughs> cool. They hit him with demolitions finisher. Then they hit him with a heart attack. Then they hit him with the Road Warriors Doomsday device. And they're just still killing and killing and killing, killing Sean. Every time Triple H gets up, Shane McMahon runs to the outside and throws him through another table or beats him up or does something. Finally, Sean kicks out and the crowd gets really into it. The crowd is actually really invested. They seem like they were really invested in this match, which was cool. He finally tags in Triple H and he runs wild and he's hitting all his <laughs> And then finally, the McMahons pull out their ace in the hole. The Samoan killer, Umaga. Rest in peace to Umaga because he was really, really cool. Great wrestler. He was awesome. He hits the Samoan spike on Triple H as the ref is, is turned around. He's about to hit Sean with the Samoan spike when all of a sudden Kane shows up. Another, another guy entering this match. Kane shows up and attacks Umaga and they brawl to the back. Finally, we get my favorite moment maybe on the entire show. Shane McMahon sets up Shawn Michael or Triple H for his famous move, the coast to coast. He's got the, you know, he puts the, the, the garbage can on Triple H. He climbs up the corner. He's about to hit the coast to coast. And as he's flying across the ring, Shawn Michaels super kicks him out of the air. And it was not like the greatest super kick ever. It's not like he got like full extension on it or anything, but it just looked awesome. The timing was great. The way it was shot was awesome. And then crowd goes crazy. They hit uh, Vince with the garbage can, super kick, pedigree, DX wins. I mean, is DX not just the epitome of every mid-2000s preteen? I, I, I mean, do you want to talk about a group of individuals who just seemed like the epitome of cool back then to a middle schooler? It was Triple H and HBK as DX. Uh, I, they were actually the DX versus McMahon storyline. Uh, I caught a very glimpse. Like, they'll show clips on SmackDown. And once they started showing those clips of DX just trolling Vince, I ha I was begging my dad nonstop to let me stay up to watch Raw until I saw the those segments. 
<laughs> because I, I thought it was hysterical. And you know what? I, I tend to enjoy a little bit of sophomore humor. Even in this match, you got a cheap, little cheap chuckle out of me with some of those uh, clips. Rem- I remember watching Triple H and HBK come out as Vince McMahon and less cool Tommy Dreamer. Uh <laughs> And it's I'm just laughing my butt off for the entire time, and thinking back to that, I just kind of laugh to myself a little bit. <laughs> uh, and speaking of all the guys that we get to see throughout this, um, Ken Kennedy, probably the first heel that I thought was really cool because he did the mic thing. I just thought that was awesome. Oh, Kennedy. yeah. Mr. Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy would have been a huge star. If oh, he could absolutely. just stop having, <laughs> just like, just stopped doing drugs for a minute. <laughs> like, just chill for a little while, dude. But he, like, I, I, he was an annoying heel, but I loved the character itself. It was just so cool. Uh, Finley and Regal took me back to, again, feeling like a child because I watched a lot of SmackDown. Finley and Regal were frequently on there, whether they were wrestling each other or wrestling on behalf of King Booker. Uh, Umaga, the Samoan Spike, just a move that looks like it could actually possibly kill somebody because <laughs> you're just driving your thumb into their throat. And he just—he was just this ultimate badass. Um, I don't remember his, the manager's name, but... Armando a... Alejandro Estrada, who was like a... He was like a, a, a Cuban stereotype. He was like just your classic kind of like... You know, he talks like Al Pacino and Scarface. He's wearing the suits. He's got the Cuban cigars. But he was actually a, a Palestinian guy named Hazim Ali. You know he wasn't. He, it was just like a complete like. <laughs> like <laughs> they just you. took a Middle Eastern guy and they were like, "You're Cuban now." <laughs> but he's super cheesy. But I enjoy seeing his mic work. Uh, hearing his mic work, you don't see mic work. Um, but again, you mentioned it before, the pop on Michaels kicking out after all those finishers. The crowd has a lot of love for this match. Triple H, probably one of my favorite guys all time. Uh, I love his ability to go from serious to goofy on the drop of a pin. I also enjoy his moveset, like uh, the high knee, the uh, coconut buster, uh, his spine buster. Just, I enjoy his move pool a lot. I think it looks very high impact. It's very enjoyable to watch. It's a miracle Shane didn't break his neck on that super kick because that, I mean, there's no good way to take that move. There just isn't. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's just Vince gets his comeuppance like he tends to do. And this is just fun. This is just a funny match, even if it does drag in a little bit uh, in the early part with just them beating up on Shawn Michaels. When I die... I want it to be because Shawn Michaels super kicked my brains out of my head. Is that an acceptable way to die? Yes. Because that's what I want. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to say something out loud, and it's going to be a t- another take after what I said about the last match. I love Shane O'Mac. Okay, I love Shane McMahon. I'm going to say it. No, is he a world? Is he a world class wrestler? No. Does he have the worst working punch in the game? I don't know. You be the judge I will say this. I thought his punch looked pretty good in this match. Okay, thank you. I didn't want to say it because I thought you were going to make fun of it. But I didn't think it looked that bad. I was like, oh, man. Like, it's not the worst I've ever seen. It's no there's Undertaker. Plenty, there's, there's plenty of videos of him doing the worst punches in history. But it was actually not that bad in this match. <laughs> like, I just, I don't know. I, I'm a guy who loves big spots. I love crowd pops and big spots. 
And Shane McMahon, I think, oh my gosh, uh, I shouldn't open my mouth before I know what I'm saying, but he did this. He uh, got knocked off of the Jumbotron at a pay-per-view. I want to say it was like SummerSlam 2000. Was it the one with Steve Blackman? Yes. Blackman's hitting him with the kendo stick? Yep, and he yeah, falls yeah, off. Yeah. Was that like 2000? Does that sound right? That was like, yeah, 2000, 99 or 2000. Yeah, just which is one of my favorite spots of all time. Like, I love those. And then he's willing to take a super kick from a coast to coast. That could have legitimately killed him if, if either one of them screws it up. If Shawn okay. Michaels wasn't perfect in everything that he ever exactly, did. Exactly, exactly. And, like, let's say Shane has his chin out a little bit too much. He's His head is going into the seventh row, okay? I just – it's brutal. Um, but also, I, I seem to recall, like, one time Shane McMahon won with a coast-to-coast. But, like, he never won with a coast-to-coast. Like, ever. He lost, yeah. like, every match he's ever been in, except until 2019. So – and I do love Shane McMahon, though. Yeah. That's my love letter to him. I love you, Shane O'Mac. That super kick on the coast-to-coast, again, I had to watch that, like, six times. <laughs> like, I had to rewind and watch that again, like, six times. And I think the thing that made that even better was I, I the way it was shot, because the way the camera is angled, it's, it's mm-hmm. angled behind Triple H. So it's pointed out towards Shane O'Mac, not yeah. from the side. It's point, like... Shane right O'Mac is jumping towards the camera. And then all of a sudden, at the last second, here comes Shawn Michaels from right out of frame. Boom, out of nowhere. <laughs> and it just Love looks it. awesome. Well, that was my favorite favorite moment of the night. And so now we move on to our main event. It's Edge and John Cena. Edge, the WWE champion. If he is disqualified, he loses the championship. This is in the middle of that just... This Edge scene rivalry that went on forever, and I don't think really got old the whole time. I mean, this was like probably my favorite feud of this whole time period of WWE. Cena comes out. He's getting a lot of cheers. He is from Massachusetts, but we ring the bell, and we immediately start getting all the Cena sucks chants, and then he just starts getting booed the entire rest of the match. We have the classic, let's go Cena, Cena sucks, the dueling chants, but then... Towards the end, it's basically just all boots. And I mean, like, and it's it's so funny because there's one moment in this match where Cena gets like thrown over the the top rope and he kind of lands near the barricade. And you hear one dude go, You suck, Cena. You're never gonna win the title. <laughs> I do I remember love, this. I love when it's like when the when the trash talk from the fans is like in kayfabe, where it's like, there's no <laughs> way you could ever hope to defeat Edge, the rated R superstar. Like, I love it. <laughs> That's my favorite stuff. But so we do this match and it's uh it's a pretty good match. I thought I mean these guys always have pretty good chemistry, not just out of the ring, but in the ring as well. Um Edge puts him in a camel clutch at one point, which I, I pop for, big iron sheet guy. Um <laughs> Lita slides in a chair at one point for Edge to do some some school duggery with it. Edge is like, no, I, what the hell? What are you doing? I'm 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 not going to use this chair because if I get disqualified, I lose the title. So he gets rid of it, immediately gets clotheslined out of his out of his just entire skeleton. Cena <laughs> hits the five-knuckle shuffle. He's about to hit the FU, which it was still called the FU at this point. Edge reverses it into an impaler DDT. You have, I thought, a really cool spot right towards the end of this match where 
Edge is about, it goes for the spear, but Cena reverses it into a drop toe hold, turns it straight into the submission. Mm-hmm. I thought that looked phenomenal. I just thought that looked perfect. Finally, you have Edge gets, you know, he's fighting out of the STFU. He finally grabs the rope. Lita slips brass knuckles onto Edge's hand. Well, the referee doesn't see it. She runs, like, Edge, and the, the, the ending of this match is, like, a little bit convoluted, so bear with me here. So she slips the brass knuckles onto Edge's fingers. And then she runs into the ring. Cena's got Edge up on his shoulders to hit the FU and win the match. Lita runs into the ring. Somehow, Lita running into the ring and getting involved is not a disqualification. I don't know how this works. <laughs> she somehow, didn't strike anyone. I guess. Somehow, out of this, she also ends up on top of Cena's shoulder. She just kind of runs and just jumps on top of Edge and lies there. <laughs> so, Cena kind of goes for the FU, but only Lita flies off. So, he's still got Edge on her shoulders. Lita takes the bump. And as the ref goes to, to check on her, Edge slips out, hits him with the brass knuckles, just slams him in the back of the head with the brass knuckles, and pins him. And you're still WWE champion with the beautiful spinny belt. And- <laughs> I loved this match. Um, I, I'm just going to be honest. I'm a big Cena guy. But, David, I, I want you to tell me if I'm wrong when I say this. But I, I just when I noticed... Cena runs the ropes so well. Yes. He runs them. Okay, so I'm, I'm glad that you agree with my assessment. Like, he just, like, when he hits the ropes, he just looks so natural at it. And, like, I don't know. He runs it like his gimmick, if that makes any sense. He runs it like a cool guy who doesn't lose. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, it, I, I've always loved that part of him. Um, the crowd, I, I mean, I know you said that he kind of got booed, but, like, there was at one point they was doing, they were doing the, Let's go Cena chants. And they were definitely louder than the Cena sucks part. At least I felt. Well, it was like the um, classic let's go Cena, Cena sucks. Yeah. Where the, the let's go Cena chants are like noticeably higher pitched because they're all like kids. Kids. <laughs> and then the Cena sucks are all like like us. Like us. <laughs> the smart marks. <laughs> the 23-year-olds. The they're all assholes on the internet. 23 <laughs> to 25-year-old smart marks who have a podcast and think people care about their wrestling opinion um i i again this was just me this match felt bigger than any other match we've done so far this match felt so important it felt like these two guys were legitimately like this is a championship fight i want it he wants it and i'm gonna kick his ass to get both of them um i just i really felt that and when when we go to our marks uh, and assign those. I'm going to talk a little bit more about why I felt that way. Um, but again, just a super, I thought it was a big match. Lita getting involved. Uh, Lita was like on the hard cam a lot and like leaning over the ring. And I was like, I guarantee you that Vince McMahon made her wear that shirt and made her stand right there for most of the match because she was just half flashing America for most of the match. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then he gets you know she she gets involved in it and um, I'm a big fan of that kind of uh, interference but yeah that's all I got for that one. All right, I'm gonna I, I apologize. I am gonna probably ramble here because again, <laughs> so many fond memories of this style of match or the people involved with this match. First thing I'm gonna say, bring back the old titles. I hate the new titles. They look so <laughs> gosh damn boring. <laughs> 
You have the Spinner Belt, iconic. You have the World Heavyweight Championship Belt, iconic. These two current belts, the Universal and the World Heavyweight Belt, are just boring and awful and I just so plain for a company that's supposed to be the leader in sports entertainment those titles need to be better I'm sorry uh, <laughs> back to the match itself uh, Edge and Cena like David said just such a great rivalry and I think what makes it again what I alluded to a little bit earlier is just how personal it felt I mean we see Edge uh, slapping Cena's dad or I'm not sure if it's actually John Cena's real dad or if they just had an actor. No, that, that's, that's, that's his is, real dad. It is his real dad. Okay. <laughs> Thank Even you better. For, yes. It makes it better because, again, when you have these stories where you start to blend reality and wrestling, again, I think that there are moments where it works where you can you know, not offend anyone, make it not seem tasteless. Um, like we mentioned before, it's just – it makes it personal. And I think a lot of that has to do with something that WWE did away with, which is that rematch clause. Uh, you could say that was cheap storytelling to guarantee the rematch between the former title holder and the new title holder. It also helps build up these rivalries and make them seem bigger than what they really were. Absolutely. Because nowadays, once you get done, it's once it's who's next after the title. You never have the old title holder stick around. They're always moved on to something else. And it's weird to see someone that was a champion for a period of time not be involved with a storyline about how he really wants his title back. You'll maybe see a promo on the next SmackDown or Raw where he's like, yeah, I'm going to get my title back, but then they never follow up on it and he's mm-hmm. dealing with somebody else or putting somebody over. You don't see that back and forth. And yeah, you could say that leads to very repetitive matches because you get that cheap rematch clause built in. Uh, you could say that Edge and Cena was a one that was very much overplayed you could say the same thing about cena orton but the reason why they're overplayed and why, but why they kept going is because those matches end up being really good you get to build chemistry with that guy because you're wrestling him for the next three months over the same belt yes you don't get as many challengers yes you don't get as many guys near the top of the card but i think that kind of works a little bit better than just saying yeah we're just gonna say once you lose you're done you're you're not on the top of the card anymore you have to work your way back up uh and I think a lot of the big driver in this match is just seeing the facial expressions of both these guys, too. They help sell, sell the story of, I need to beat the hell out of this guy to be great. I need to get this title back, so I'm going to beat the hell out of him. And that kind of brings me to my final point on this. It seems like w- modern WWE is missing an edge. I don't mean that as a pun. I mean the literal guy. Uh, <laughs> yes, Edge is back, and it's great to well, see. Yeah, I, I will say that he is allegedly going to have the greatest wrestling match ever. <laughs> <laughs> now, yes, but he's not playing the same char- character he was back then. I mean, right. he's obsessive, he's manipulative, he takes shortcuts, and he's a guy that's billed and has been shown as someone that probably doesn't need to do all these things, but he does because he wants to stay on top. It doesn't seem like that they, WWE currently has a guy that fits that profile. I mean, I ran down a few guys that may be similar. Miz is there, but he comes off as a little bit goofy. Uh, Rollins probably could, but right now he's doing his Monday Night Messiah, uh, which is a different character. I don't think it's the same thing. The guy I said was probably closest to the modern-day Edge, and you guys might chew me out for it, is Adam Cole. I know we love to compare him to HBK, but the guy, he's the NXT champion. He's obsessed with staying the NXT champion and being the top of the NXT. He has a stable that constantly helps him out in these title matches to make sure he stays the champion. 
even though he's a guy that has been billed as super talented, who went over Daniel Bryan on a Friday Night SmackDown when Daniel Bryan was still the Universal Champion or the World Heavyweight Champion. And he's the closest guy that they have as this obsessive, cocky, I need to be champion because that's my destiny, that's that's who I am. The championship defines me. And he's the only guy that's really, I think, on WWE that fits that profile. And I know that you guys are both going to say I'm wrong based on your facial expressions, but that's just how I feel. I, I, I can honestly see where you're coming from and why you're making that analogy. I, I'll just say that I believe it when I see the Adam Cole, Kyle O'Reilly live sex celebration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, kind of going back to what you were talking about, Angelo, I, there is the sense of just the way WWE kind of tells stories now. Again, this was a a feud that had been going on for at least, I mean, the beginning of January. Because, I mean, Edge first won the title off Cena at New Year's Revolution when he cashed in money in the bank. If not before. I can't remember if they were feuding before that. But this was a feud that lasted eight months or more. I mean, it continued to go on through throughout the year and it didn't really get old. I mean, they were able to keep it fresh. And I mean, there is the sense watching WWE now that they never really let feuds like that breathe anymore. Mm -hmm. They don't really let stories like that get told at the top of the card over a long period of time. You know, we're going to, we're going to see like the one kind of exception going on right now is edge versus Orton, but that's been going on for like, Okay, two months. And it'll probably get dropped after the greatest wrestling match ever on on <laughs> on so on Sunday. Um, they don't let because I mean back in the day, you know, back in the eighties, nineties, back when there were fewer pay-per-views, guys would just feud forever. <laughs> I mean, Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage feuded for like two years. I mean, they just kind of did stuff like that because you had less big shows to build to, so they would you know, kind of set their card for the next pay-per-view three months from now, and then they would let it build and let it ride. And then if they wanted to keep it going, they would. Now everything is like, okay, well, we got a pay-per-view in three weeks, so we got to kind of quickly build something up in three weeks, and then we got to set something up after that, and then it just kind of jumps from thing to thing. We don't really get to see rivalries like the one between Edge and Cena grow and breathe the way that they used to. And... Yeah, and I think that like like the they were talking about it recently with oh my gosh, who was it? I, I was reading an article about it because it was right around the time that WWE announced like we're gonna stop doing the rematch clause, and it was like, is that really why they think that matches nowadays are stale? Like, no, that's not the reason. The reason is because like you would just be like, okay, now they're getting a rematch, and then they wouldn't like inca- like they would just kind of fight a little bit up to the pay per view, and then they would wrestle like. They didn't build a story within it, you know. And Edge and Cena had this had a story behind it. Okay, they they just don't build the story within the matches, and so much they were just like, "Oh yeah, he's got a rematch. That's right. That's it." Yeah. I mean, you right now the only I th- you mentioned uh, Edge Orton, and they've been building this up for two months now, and you could say that there's history from before Edge retired. Sure, whatever. Uh it's it, it's two twenty twenty. It, it, it's a different rivalry than maybe it would have been five years ago, six years ago. The, right now, the only rivalry I th- could see them doing that with 
is Bray and Braun because they have that background and you've had Bray kind of on the shelf for the past month while he's been, you know, celebrating the birth of his second kid. I think it's a second kid. And that's kind of why he's been off TV. And that's mm-hmm. why we see Miz and Morrison challenging Braun Strowman in a two-on-one handicap match at Backlash for the universal title. Woo. Great storytelling there. <laughs> uh, but like, you don't, again, you really need these buildups and a final culmination as what made NXT really good before maybe it was moved to USA. Like think about Chapa versus Gargano, how long that went, how intense that rivalry was. And it seemed like they were wrestling on almost every other paper uh, takeover, but there is a reason for that because of how intense that rivalry was. These are two guys that couldn't stop beating the crap out of each other. And the story made sense to it. And there's nothing like that right now in WWE. Yeah, completely, completely agreed. So I guess kind of wrapping things up, uh, overall thoughts on this pay-per-view. I mean, this is the first time we've kind of dipped our toes into this time period, 2006, mid-2000s era WWE. The dawn of two marks. Yes. This is the Uh, the dawn of two marks. Yeah. uh, I... It's nice to see... Are we just going to stare at each other for yes, a while Yes, we are. Yes. Um, it's nice to revisit <laughs> uh, this era. My, I, I called it my era of WWE because this is where, you know, it's still real to you back then as a kid. Nowadays, I mean, yeah, we're smart marks and we make a joke about that all the time. Uh, but back then, it, there's no thinking about what's going on in the background. It's just watching what I see on TV and seeing them as characters or people and just watching what the story is and watching cool things that are happening on my TV. Um it's not a lot of spots as we saw with the uh, anarchy rules. I mean, the matches themselves are a lot more tame, uh, less things that stick out. I mean, the Mick Foley, Ric Flair match is probably the exception to that as well as Sabu and big show, but the stories that they tell on this card, I mean, say what you want about the Eddie storyline. That's a story polarizing as it is. Um, King Booker. That's a story. DX versus advance. Another good story. Uh, Cena Edge, classic story. They're all told, and they get you really emotionally invested. Now, some are in bad taste, like uh, Chavo vs. Ray, because, again, this is fresh off the death of Eddie Guerrero. But the other stories that they're telling, the buildup between DX and uh, the McMahons, King Booker becoming this character and larger-than-WWE character, um, Cena and Edge, how personal that rivalry got... They're all those three stories are told extremely well from three different di- viewpoints and then from three different, completely different uh, tactics, I would say. And I think that's kind of what makes this SummerSlam. I probably say, I think this is probably the best pay per view we've watched so far on two and a half marks. Uh, it's not so much that the matches themselves are memorable, it's the stories that they're telling. I, for one, hate following Angelo because he does such better analysis than me. Because I was just going to say, I really liked it. But now <laughs> I feel compelled to talk more. So, but honestly, I'm probably just going to echo what he says, really. I, I agree with with Ange that this was my favorite pay-per-view we've done so far. Because um, I loved the Orton and Hogan match. I know Hogan in, isn't like a five-star worker, but like, it's Hulk Hogan. He doesn't have to be. He's just Hulk Hogan. That's just he's just cool. Um, then you've got you know the Flair Foley, which was just a storytelling masterclass. Shane and Vince versus DX. I mean, that's just beauty in and of itself. 
Cena versus Edge, the biggest match we've seen, in my opinion, that we've seen so far. I love it. You know, yeah. I, I thought it was a great ma- a, a great pay per view, and uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing some mid two thousands WWE sometime in soon. Yeah, and and for me, I know one of the things I really complained about last time we did WWE pay per view two thousand twelve Hell in a Cell was the fact that every match felt the same and every match was structured the same. I didn't feel that way with this pay-per-view. I felt we've got a lot of different things and a lot of different types of stories and a lot of different types of matches. And it was just fun to watch. I I had a good time watching this pay-per-view aside from just the kind of built-in nostalgia of like, yeah, I remember this from when I was 12 years old. I remember what I marked out for when I was a kid, you know? I I enjoyed this. I thought this was was a fun one to watch. So moving on to our two and a half marks, the name of the podcast Angelo, you want to start us off? I mean, only if Jake is want me go, to go first, because he does make a great point in the fact that I am a little bit of a blowhard. Angelo, I am going to powerbomb you through a table if you don't shut up and give us your marks. Okay, uh, let's start off with my <laughs> half mark. Uh, you could, th- Again, it's hard for me to, to get, give these marks, and I've kind of stuck with going with wrestlers. Uh, and... You could say that this is a low ball, but I gave the half mark to Ric Flair. I mean, the work he does Ooh. in that in that uh, I quit match with Mick Foley for a 57-year-old, he's got no right being in this kind of match, much less putting on this type of match that is just gripping, exciting, in- insane to watch seeing these two guys beat the crap out of each other. So I'm going to recognize Ric Flair with the half mark. The one mark I am giving to both Chavo and Rey Mysterio, yes, this is fresh off the death of the Vega, but the match they put on, the story that they're telling, I do believe that they wanted to tell this match because they cared for Eddie so much. And that's kind of why I take off from it. I have a hard time believing someone as well-renowned renowned as Rey Mysterio would be forced to work an angle that he didn't want to, especially an angle like this. You could say it was cheap for cheap heat or cheap, you know, storytelling, but those two guys, they felt like the ultimate professionals in this match with how it ends, with how this feud continues, and again, leading to little Angelo crying over an I Quit match on Friday Night SmackDown. <laughs> I have to recognize both those guys. And lastly, the two marks. I mean, how could I not give to Edge? The well, probably the guy that brought us all together <laughs> for this podcast because of the frequent Edge is not dead jokes. Uh, that's which is an inside joke shout with our friends. Shout out to Nick Perillo. <laughs> shout out Matt. to Nick Perillo. But the facial expressions you see from Edge, just the crazed, obsessed look you see in his eyes, um, the way he has a flair for his moves. His spear feels so unique from everyone else that has a spear, which seems like you see a lot nowadays. Everybody. Everybody. His spear still feels unique to me. And the story about how if he gets DQ'd, he loses his title, and how he still plays up and does something that would have got him DQ'd to win the match. I just think the way that storytelling goes, I'm going to recognize the guy, the man, the myth, the legend, Edge, with my two marks. (laughs) David, you go ahead. Let's mix up the order. Okay. So I'm going to give my half mark to Mr. John Cena of West Newberry, Massachusetts, because watching him back, <laughs> watching this era of John Cena, I, and Jake, you kind of made reference to it, talking about like just kind of the way he ran the ropes and everything. I kind of forgot how athletic John Cena was at this point. And there are certain guys where 
they were they come into wrestling as athletes or football players or whatever where especially guys who are football players and john cena was a a college football player where just kind of by the way they move around the ring you can tell that they were a football player and john cena is kind of like that i i, I kind of forgot the way that he worked back then and the way that he moved around and i was very impressed with how athletic he was because again this is still a pretty young john cena relatively i i was very impressed by by his work in this match especially because he was a guy that back then a lot of guys chanted you can't wrestle at john cena and i don't think that's has ever ever been true i'm going to give my one mark to Shawn michaels because he carries that dx match with with the mcmahon's sells and sells and sells and sells works his ass off and then hits my favorite move of the whole night that super kick off the coast to coast which again i had to rewind at least six times because i thought it looked so cool and then finally my two marks to nobody else but the nature boy rick flair because yeah talk about Shawn michaels working his ass off rick flair put in some work in this match an absolute masterclass of storytelling from rick flair and he was literally killing himself to make this match work. <laughs> 57-year-old man taking bumps on a thumbtacks, getting hit in the head with barbed wire, bleeding all over the ring for 15 minutes, just was absolutely in awe of Ric Flair in this match. So full two to Mr. Flair. So uh, as I've been doing, I, I, I went uh, slightly non-traditional with my marks. Um I would like to give my half mark to Vince and Linda McMahon's genetics because they produced two children who I don't know. I don't know if I should call Shane like a, like a great athlete, but like he does some stuff that is just like incredibly impressive. He does the, the, uh, Oh shoot. What's, what's he call his elbow? Um, leap of faith, the leap of faith. I couldn't think of it. Yeah, uh, he does the leap of faith. He does the coast to coast. You know, he that stupid dance move he does when his theme song's playing, which I love. I call it stupid, but I it's because I love it. Um, he's he's super athletic. They present they produced Stephanie McMahon, who just like when she does wrestle, isn't that bad. And I mean, have you seen her? You know, you got to give props to that. Um, so my half mark goes to uh, Vince and Linda's genetics. Uh, my one mark is going to go f to the hairstyles of this pay-per-view. David kind of already talked about Hogan's hair, like how his scalp reached his <laughs> neck, um, which was pretty impressive. But like Big Show's got the shaved uh, goatee like down the middle, which I thought was just absolutely awful. Um, Ric Flair has like the stringiest hair ever. You know, then you've got Edge with the long hair, Cena with the short hair. Batista's got like that weird goatee that he had for a while. Um, I just I he has know. what Big Show was missing. Yeah, exactly. He he stole Big Show's hair. Like some of the hairstyles, man, they just crack me up. Um, and then my two marks are gonna go to Metalingus, the greatest intro music of all time. David and I did a bracket a couple weeks ago of the greatest wrestling intros. And Metalingus won because I feel as though that contributed to the feel of every big match Edge was in. 
that just made Edge feel like such a damn competitor. Like when Metalingus hit, you were like, oh, Edge is here to like ruin this guy. And how he much, was. How much cooler was it when Edge finally made his return at the Royal Rumble? Oh, oh my gosh. Because of that song. Because you hear, you think you know me. And then you just lose your mind. Like, the, what I if didn't it was, hear the rest what, of it. What if it was, you know, the, the Billy Gunn, I'm an ass man song? Like, <laughs> the wrong song could have made that whole moment just not matter. Although, David, we need to be fair. We didn't hear anything after You Think You Know Me because we were screaming like schoolgirls during that. We were. But yes, on the rewatches, it was definitely important. You can barely um, hear it on the rewatches because the, cr- the entire crowd's oh like, my God, just they cheering loved so loud. It, dude. So awesome. But I think I think just wrestling intros in general can do so much. Like If you look at like Nakamura, Bobby Roode before WWE absolutely ruined him. Um, people like that, can, you can get over on an intro. Your intro can get you over, and that that can be the step you need to go farther. Even though some, they don't, you know, wrestlers can't always capitalize. Um, I think it's a great stepping stone. And Metalingus, man, when I hear the "You think you know me," I'm just instantly like, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to fight, fight for or against Edge. I don't care. <laughs> so that's a half mark to Vince and Linda's genetics. One mark to uh, like the flair, the Hogan, the Big Show's hairstyles, and two marks to Metalingus. And so that will bring us to the last order of business. We're going to hit the randomizer, find out what we're going to relive next week. Boys, as I do this, as I hit this up, any thoughts? What are you guys hoping for? 80s flair. I want some dusty. I want some dusty. Ooh. Okay. Ooh, okay. Uh So... We, you guys might be on point with this one. Let me look at this card. 1989, WCW, Chi-Town Rumble. Oh, we're going back. Let's go. I know this one. In the main event. I'm pretty sure I know this one. There is no, I I regret to inform Angelo that there is no Dusty on this pay-per-view, but the main event is Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair. Ric Flair, yeah, dude, this is one of the greatest matches of all time. Yeah. If you know anything about history of WCW, Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, 1989, were known for having some of the greatest matches in history. So Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat in the main event. This, this will be an absolute treat to watch. We also got the Road Warriors on there in a tag team title match. We've got uh, Barry Windham on there. We've got the Steiners on there. We've got the Midnight Lex Express. Luger. Oh, wow. Yeah, we got, we got 80s Sting. This is going to be some good stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with the amount of names I recognize that you just rattled off that. I'm now <laughs> extremely excited to watch. So next week, WCW <laughs> Chi-Town Rumble 1989. This is going to be pretty sick. I am looking forward to it. I'm excited. Absolutely. So until then, this has been episode five of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. SummerSlam 2006 is in the books And for my friends Jake Long and Angelo Inglisa, I'm David Statman once again. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 